The sermon text this morning is found in the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible in front of you, if you do not have a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you. It is the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 7 to 22. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrew, has met with us. And now please let us go three uh, days' journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you so much for uh, your hearty singing, for engaging uh, in the the worship of the Lord. What a joy it is to, uh, to join with you. It's, it's a great privilege uh, to be your uh, brother in Christ. It's a great privilege to be, it's the joy of my life to be your pastor. And I'm just grateful for you and for your love for the Lord, for your eagerness to, uh, to hear from him and to put into practice all that he reveals in his word. I'll ask you to turn back to Exodus chapter 3 in case your Bible fell closed in the last couple of minutes. 
Exodus chapter 3. I'm, I am excited. Thanks, Matt, for praying for me. I'm excited about this opportunity that I have in a few weeks to travel to Santiago, Chile, to uh, preach and teach at a seminary there. 35 years ago, if you can believe this, I chose that city as a topic for my sixth grade research project. I've got no clue why. I can't remember what it was that piqued my interest then. Uh, but I do know that my interest was renewed in the summer of 2010 when the news came out that 33 Chilean miners had been trapped in a copper mine in Copiapo, Chile. You remember that story? Uh, terrible. And we were all watching with bated breath. Two it went on for over two months. These Chilean miners, they were huddled together in this uh, space that they called the refuge. And uh, rescue crews were working round the clock to remove the nearly 800,000 tons of rock that laid between them and the surface. Can you imagine being trapped like that? I mean, I have a hard time in any kind of enclosed space. Imagine that. I, that's the worst. I, I can only think of maybe one thing worse than that, but that's, that's bad. And then you'll recall, of course, that the whole world rejoiced when after 68 grueling days, every single one of those 33 Chilean miners were pulled to safety. Now, if that kind of situation is pretty much the worst situation you could ever be in, then there's maybe nothing more wonderful than a successful rescue mission. Uh, whether it's baby Jessica being pulled from a well in 1987, or baby Caleb uh, being pulled from a well in 2014, or uh, whether it's Nassau saving the crew of Apollo 13, or Captain Sully landing on the Hudson River and saving all of the souls on board Flight 1549, wouldn't you agree we're all captivated by a good salvation story? And Exodus is the story of the second best rescue mission of all time. And we're inching our way closer to the end of chapter 4 where this mission is going to kick off in earnest. But these first few chapters have been really helpful, I think, to show us first the situation... Uh, the, the reason that, that deliverance is needed in the first place, and then secondly, to show us um, something of the rise of the deliverer, the one who is going to um, be given this charge of this mission. And today we're in chapter three, which we've divided into three parts. If, you're, if you weren't here last week, just know that, that we began looking at this last week and uh, we divided it up into two parts, and I, I confess that it's not a great place to stop at the end of verse 6, but we did stop with Moses um, when he turned aside to see this great sight. And today, we're going to receive with Moses a great commission. That's the title of this sermon, a great commission. And the relationship between these two parts of chapter 3, I think, is crucial. As I argued last week, that if you're ever going to be used of the Lord, then it is essential that you first catch a glimpse of his holiness, his glory, his majesty. you got to see him before you are sent by him. It seems That seems to be the pattern of scripture, that you first need to experience God's excellencies before you can go forth and proclaim those excellencies to, to others. So that's how these two kind of fit together. And we looked at the first half last week where the Lord was very gracious to reveal himself to Moses in the most memorable way, if you'll recall. Uh, the first six verses of chapter three describe um, a favorite Sunday school story, the, the burning bush, which is just a glorious and marvelous and head-scratching revelation of the living God. And um, now you'll see that the lines that I drew there are, are not, you know, neat and tidy because God actually is going to continue revealing himself 
uh, throughout this chapter, the rest of what we'll look at today, certainly. However, as we, as we continue today, beginning in verse 7, you'll, you'll note, I think, a transition in topic to the mission that God has planned for the rescue of his people. Um, that's what's, that's what's going to be our focus here today, the, the mission itself that God has planned for his people. And I suspect that we're not going to be able to avoid seeing some parallels between a, this and a couple of other great commissions. I'm thinking, for example, of the number one greatest rescue mission of all time, which is the sending of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to, to rescue us out of slavery to sin and to self and to Satan. And I'm also thinking about that, that great rescue mission that we've been sent out on by our risen and ascending Lord, that, that great commission that comes to us that charges us to make disciples of all nations. So let's take a closer look at the rest of Exodus 3 in order to see four things about Moses' mission and about Christ's mission and about our mission we want to consider four P's about the mission. Four P's about the mission. The first one is, you. I've heard from you, you like it when I just give these to you all at, at the front here, so I'll, I'll do that. We'll see that first, the passion of behind the mission. Then we want to look at the personnel for the mission. Third, the purpose of the mission. And fourth, the preview of the mission. Passion, personnel, purpose, preview of, of this great mission, this rescue mission that Moses, that Christ, that we have been sent out on. So first then, uh, the passion behind the mission. And in verse 7, the Lord God shares with Moses what it is that's motivating him, what's motivating this mission that he announces in verse 8. And, and we could really just summarize it with one word. And that word is compassion. Compassion. The Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering." Now, you might recognize that language if, if you've been with us, if you've been tracking through Exodus with us. You'll, you'll no doubt recognize this language because it, it matches three of the four verbs that we came across at the end of chapter 2. There we read that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And then you'll notice uh, that the substance of this is repeated again in verse 9 of our passage. Just take a glance there. And eventually, this is communicated to the Israelites at the end of chapter 4. So we have this kind of repeating refrain of all that God has recognized and taken pity on. I think this repetition is intentional. I think it's designed so that we would understand something of the, the profound love and compassion that the Lord has for his people, that the Lord has for lost people, hurting people, broken people, and, and that we would get a sense for how their plight and their prayers, their cries, their groanings, how these all move the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm well aware of of the risk of saying that anything moves God. Okay, we certainly want to uphold the, the doctrine of divine impassibility, which denies that God experiences any kind of ch emotional change or suffers in any way as, as a result of things that take place on the part of his creatures. So we definitely want to uphold that. That's been Christian orthodoxy for millennia. At the same time, it would be, I think, a monumental mistake to conceive of God as being, you know, kind of cold or distant or stoic. 
or apathetic. There's a, there's a theological tension there, to be sure. And uh, a friend of mine, a careful theologian by the name of Rob Lister, he has written a very helpful book on this topic. And I think he capped, you should read the whole book, but really you can get the essence of the book and the balance just in the title itself. He called that book, God is Impassable and Impassioned. God is Impassable and Impassioned. Now I've got a little kid homesick today. And uh, as you know, Johnny is a kid who's always ripping around red hair flying in the wind. He's always smiling. He's fully alive. Well, the last couple of days, he's been lying on a couch with his head next to a bucket. Weak, pitiful, moaning even. And uh, to break up the monotony of a whole day laying around on a couch, we, we offered him some rare video game time. And the kid said, no, thank you which made us, of course, immediately take his temperature again. <laughs> but really, can any, can any parent bear to hear their child moan? You, you know this. I know you know this. You would, you would do literally anything. You would switch places if you could. You would. You would switch places if it meant that your kid would be relieved and restored. Behold then, friends, the heart of the Father. His, he, he is infinite in his perfections. You think you know how to show love and compassion and mercy and pity. You think you're able to do that? What about a God who is infinite in all of his perfections, demonstrating perfect love and perfect mercy and total compassion? They, they are his in infinite measure. Here, here's a God who sees and, and, and hears and knows every single moan and groan of his people in bondage. Every cry after every crack of every whip. Every drop of, of blood from blistered, brick-laying hands. Every shriek from every mother as, as her newborn son is ripped out of her arms and thrown into the Nile. Not one of those is lost on the Lord. He has surely seen, and notice the emphasis here in the text, he has surely seen and heard, and he surely knows all about Israel's suffering. You'll, you'll understand right away, I think it's obvious, that that's not just knowing like, oh yeah, I, I know about that. It's not just head knowledge. No, this is the kind of knowledge that makes you know that he's about to do something about it. This is a knowledge that prompts action. And I'm saying that this is what is motivating this mission, a passion for his people. What's motivating this mission is the Lord's compassion for, for suffering souls for people who are groaning under the weight of oppression and affliction. You, you realize, don't you, that this is not just a past description of God. This is not how he was kind of back then. Friends, this is God presently. This is, this is the flip side of impassibility, immutability. He is unchanging. He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what I'm saying to you is that this is your God. The steadfast love of the Lord never faileth. His, his mercies never come to an end. And this means that he knows your pain. He, he hears your groans. He sees your struggles. The Bible says we would never dream, we would never make this up. But God tells us that he keeps count of our tossings. And he puts our tears in, the, in his bottle. Are they not in his book, he says? Like it's an, this is an obvious rhetorical kind of question. What better encouragement do you need to endure today? I know many of you are struggling in indescribable ways. I, I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that 
you're groaning under the weight of all of this. And, and I'm saying, be encouraged. This, this is your God. This is a God who cares deeply. And then what better incentive do you need to pour out your heart to him in prayer? We talked about this um, from the, in kids block and in uh, prayer meeting. This, this was the New City Catechism question, number 38. We're called on to, what is prayer? It's pouring out our hearts to God. And this is the God that, that we're praying to and laying all of our burdens at his feet. This is a God who sees and knows and, and cares. And he is, this moves him, if you'll let me use that language, this moves him to great action on behalf of his people. Now, in this connection, let's take a fresh look at a very familiar verse, John 3.16, you know that one? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I, I hope the familiarity of that verse never breeds contempt. It's so wonderful. Listen to what it's saying. It's saying that the very Son of God was dispatched to accomplish the greatest rescue mission ever, but that verse also tells us the the motivation for that mission. Do you see it? It's the love of God. And not just the love, but the so love this is, this is not just regular stand, standard run-of-the-mill love. This is a so love. This is a love so extraordinary, which is exactly what we need to match our extraordinary lostness. And then that kind of love, that kind of rescue, requires an extraordinary Savior. And it can be none other than the very Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same kind of love and compassion for the lost that's behind the great commission that we've received. God's intention of choosing this nation, this people, Israel, you'll recall from Genesis, was to be a blessing to the nations. He didn't intend at the ultimate spot to just bless this one particular people, this one particular nation. No, God's intention right from the beginning is that this nation and everyone who's attached to them by faith would be a blessing to all of the nations. And he sends us out into the nations with the gloriously good news of the gospel. That's our mission. I hope you realize today that that's your mission. That's not just the mission of a few select super Christians that we throw our money at. This is the great commission that comes to every single one of us to go into the world and make disciples, to, to bring the message of this salvation to a lost and a dying world. That's our mission. The question, I guess, is why are we so reluctant to engage in it? And there's probably millions of reasons, but let me just put my finger on one that I think might might be appropriate. Here's something that might be missing. One of our problems is that we are lacking the passion behind the mission. And by that I mean is that we don't share God's love for the lost. We don't, we don't have his compassion for the lost. You can, you can see this in the repeated refrains in the text that God sees and hears and knows the plight of the people. And now just look back, if you can, into chapter 2, verse 11. I just want to show you this, uh, this connection that I noticed back then, but I wanted to wait till now to show you. It, it, it says that Moses went out to his people. And the text says that Moses looked on their burdens. In other words... Moses saw, Moses heard, Moses knew. Do you see what's happening here? Moses' compassion is in line with the Lord's. 
He's got a heart for this people that matches the heart that the Lord has for this people. And, and I'm wondering, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Do we love people the way that the Lord does? Do we look on them the way that the Lord does? I think it's obvious probably to everyone that around these parts we love truth, we, we value knowledge, and we make no ex- you know, apology for any of that. But the question is, do we love people? And do we have a passion for the lost? Are, are we moved by their groanings, their slavery to sin? David Brainerd, that great 18th century missionary, he once said, no amount of scholastic attainment, of able and profound exposition, of brilliant and stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep, impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. Brainerd had that, and so much so that He counted it a privilege to endure unspeakable hardship. And he spent his relatively short life to preach the gospel to Native Americans. So passionate was he for these lost souls. And brothers and sisters, I know this myself. I feel this temptation full well that what we're prone to do especially in this evil and divided age, our our temptation is going to be to nurse a a hatred and resentment towards our fellow man. Let us instead, you've got to fight that temptation by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit. Instead, let us cultivate deep, impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. I'm talking about your cashier. I'm talking about that that person that sits next to you in class that that you just feel so repulsed by, even. Cultivate in your heart. What I'm I'm suggesting, uh, people, is that we would gain the heart of our Lord, that we would have the same kind of heart of compassion that Christ has. And uh, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, uh, we ought to pursue that. Let's look in the second place at the personnel for the mission, the personnel. So the question here is who, who's going to be sent on this mission? Who's going to accomplish this great rescue? And the answer turns out to be a little complex. On the one hand, look at verse 8. There you have the Lord. Still speaking from the burning bush, by the way. But the Lord says, I have come down to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it's unmistakable. This is the Lord's mission. He himself is going to act. You just look at the subject of those verbs, and it's, it's God. There's no question. He's going to do it. In fact, he's saying he's already begun to do it. Divinity has descended for deliverance. That's, a, that's what he is currently engaged in doing. It's all about what God himself will do. And it becomes clear very quickly that God will have to be the one acting you understand because because the mission that he's going to describe is humanly impossible and this i think is a good place to to stop just to notice that this mission has two steps okay this the people are going to be brought out of a place into another place okay i i'll i'll talk more about that as we move on but I just want to draw your attention to it. It's a two-step process. The Lord's going to bring them out of a place, and the place that they need to be brought out of is the land of Egypt. And that's a bad land, as you know. It's a land of oppression. It's a land of affliction. 
And that'll be great for the Israelites to be brought out of that land, but that's not enough. That's incomplete. That's, that's mission unaccomplished. Out of Egypt, yes, but into what? Limbo? Just no man's land? You know, okay, you guys are on your own. No, the, the Lord has promised to bring the people into a land of their own. A land that is, it's, this is a good land. This is a big land. This is a land that is oozing milk and dripping honey. Those are the images that were given. And it sounds w- very wonderful, right? Yes, until you hear this part, that the land is currently occupied by a bunch of parasites and Jebusites and Hittites and Hivites and Amorites and Canaanites. All of these ites are currently populating this good and broad land that these people are meant to now be come into and receive as their inheritance from the Lord. Now, I hope you understand, that's an intimidating group of people. That's, those people are so intimidating that it's, it's even intimidating to, to have to read all of their names. But, but these are, the, the idea here clearly would be as soon as you hear these names stacking one on top of the other, you realize the point that the Lord's making right from the get-go is that this is impossible Humanly speaking, this is impossible. But thankfully, the personnel required for this mission is none other than God himself. And with God, as you know, all things are possible. All right, so far so good. You say, I, Pastor, I thought you said this was complicated. But then when we come to verse 9, we hear a bit of a record scratch. You know, we hear the, the sound of rewinding. We feel like someone accidentally hit the, you know, the back 10 seconds button. Because once again, we're hearing about the passion behind the mission. You see that in verse 9? The Lord says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression which, which the Egyptians oppressed them. So it's like, this is deja vu all over again. And, and we know what's coming next, right? We, we, expect, we expect that the Lord is going to declare what he himself is going to do for the deliverance of his people. Let's just see if we're right. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Wait a second. Hold up. Who's going to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt? The Lord or Moses? And the answer is yes. We're face to face once again with this interplay between the divine and the human activity, which we see all throughout scripture. And there's no contradiction here. You, You understand that that scripture, the, the, the authors of scripture, God himself presents these truths to us in a way that doesn't embarrass him in the least. He's not bothered by the, this at all. This is a mystery to us. Yes, but these are, these are totally compatible. This is first and foremost the Lord's mission. Okay, He has initiated it. He's designed it. He alone has the power and the resources to execute it. But astoundingly, and I hope this blows your mind too, God is pleased almost always to use human instrumentality to accomplish his great purposes. I'm, I'm well aware that I can't fully explain this to you some of you at the door will ask me to explain this more to you and I'm gonna just admit up front that I don't have much more of an explanation for you this is ultimately mysterious but I I do want to show you I do want you to notice that this is exactly what the Bible teaches 
And you notice, don't you, that, that the verse pairs 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 can exist side by side without, uh, as I say, even a whit of embarrassment or any kind of fear of contradiction. The Lord is totally sovereign. He's going to accomplish this. But he's pleased to use human instruments to accomplish his great purpose. Well, now Moses is stuck on the human part of all of this. That's the part that's looming large right now for him. He's just heard the Lord say, I'm sending you on this mission. So for his part, he's going to object and this is going to constitute the first of what will be five objections that he will ultimately raise. And we'll look at a bunch of these, Lord willing, next week. But this one starts innocently enough. And I would even submit to you that this is the, exactly the right place for a person on mission like Moses to begin. Moses asks in verse 11, who am I? And you got to read it like that with the emphasis on the I. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And by that question, you, you can tell that Moses is really daunted by twin realities, okay? First of all, the mission is, is way too massive. And his person is way too puny. Those are, those are both real, and they're both massive. Those are, those are huge obstacles, and Moses immediately is confronted with those realities. And as I said, I think this is a great place to be begin for him and for us. It's great to begin with the recognition of your own inadequacy. And realize that this is not the kind of question that a 40-year-old Moses would have asked. We knew him back then when he was 40, full of uh, spit and vinegar. He never would have asked this kind of question. He, he's, ready to, he's ready to go even before he's commissioned. But an 80-year-old Moses, who the Lord's been graciously dealing with now for four decades— out in the wilderness, this man now is at a, a real place of humility. And that's the only place where a question like that could ever come from, is a place of humility. And I find the Lord's answer to Moses and his objection here to be very interesting. Interesting in the first place because it's not the way that we modern people would respond to Moses, not in the least. And even we modern church people would answer Moses. It seems to me that we'd be quick to say something like, who are you kidding? Moses, are you serious right now? You got this, bro. You're, you're, you're perfect. You're the perfect candidate. You've got the connections in Egypt. You're mighty in word and deed. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And, you know, people... Ten, some people like you, but bravo, Lord, that's an A-plus acquisition. That, that's your man right there, Moses. You, you could not have picked a better guy. That's, that's what we would want to say. We'd want to pump up Moses for the mission. But when Moses asks, who am I? The Lord answers by saying, basically, you're right. You're nothing. But I'm everything. And I will be with you. Friends, listen, when, when the Lord calls you to a task that is so much bigger than you, as they all are, it's good and it's necessary and it's safe for you to admit right off the bat your inability. It's proper that you would right off the bat confess your inadequacy and you don't have to fear when you do that because he promises his presence 
He says, I will be with you. And then when you hear the command that comes to you, it, it comes to you, go you therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When you hear that command to that mission coming to you, your first instinct really needs to be, who am I? Who is sufficient for all of these things? But you didn't let Jesus finish. And here comes the game changer. He says, behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with you. And that's, all, that's really all you need to know about yourself. That you're unable, but he is perfectly able. Now that raises another question that Moses has for the Lord in verse 13. And the question is basically this, well then who are you, Lord? And he anticipates that if he was to go to the people of Israel and announce that the God of their fathers had determined to, to rescue them, the people would ask, uh, well, what is his name? Mo Moses has already heard a version of that objection, so he, he's not pulling this out of nowhere. Do you remember the, the man that he confronted back in chapter 2? Remember that guy asked him the authority question? He said, who appointed you judge over us and prince? And, and Moses wanted to be able to be prepared this time to answer that question. And so he asked the Lord, well, what should I say to them when they ask that? Who shall I say sent me? And what we have in verses 14 and 15 is the simplest and the most mysterious answer that the Lord could have possibly given. Thousands of years later, theologians are still scratching their heads over it. The, the Lord answers Moses by saying, I am what I am. Tell them that. Tell them I am sent you. And I mean, I, hard, I hardly know what to say about that answer, about this name that the Lord reveals to give to Moses to tell the people who's sending him. I'm, I'm comforted by the fact that the Lord himself here in the passage really sees no, he's not under any kind of compulsion to explain himself, and he doesn't offer us a lot of clues as to what he means by this answer. He seems to kind of just be content to put it out there and let his people wrestle with it for, you know, a few millennia. On the one hand, it sounds like a bit of a non-answer. You know, you're familiar with the expression, eh, it is what it is. We hear that all the time. It kind of sounds like that. And I've talked about that expression before. You know, I'm sure that that's uh, a bugbear of mine. I'm a little bit annoyed by, by that. No offense if, if, if that's one of your tics. No, no offense. But that phrase, it is what it is, that it's, it's ultimately meaningless. It's a, technically, it's a tautology. It's a, it doesn't advance the proposition. It simply refers to itself. It's like a dog chasing its tail. So it's circular reasoning. But in the Lord's case, it's totally appropriate and it's absolutely necessary for him to be, can I say, self-referential. I mean, who can you appeal to in order to describe and define who the Lord is? He's left with no choice but to appeal to himself. He, he's, he's his own starting point. And, and so then this phrase seems to point to God as self-existent and self-sufficient. The, the name I am um, hangs on the verb to be. And, and that verb is in the present tense, which points, I think, to God's eternality. He is, he, he is always. And so you'll recall that Jesus co-ops this name, which would be utter blasphemy, by the way, if it was, unless Jesus was actually divine. 
Over and over again, you hear Jesus making these statements like, I am, and I imagine that he paused a little bit before saying things like the passage that Glenn read earlier, the way, the truth, the life. I am, he says. And most explicitly, he says this one time when he's uh, confronting some Jewish theologians and he, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So this is a crystal clear saying about the divinity of Christ, but also about the eternality of God. He's always in the present. Now, speaking of Abraham, notice how the discussion of I am or um, the, the name Yahweh is connected to this formula. The God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that whole formula is repeated, you'll notice, throughout these chapters. And I think the effect of that is unmistakable. The effect is that the God that we're dealing with here is a God of covenant. He's the same God that has made very great and precious promises to all of these people's ancestors. And he has proven himself faithful time and time again, generation after generation. All of this is kind of contained in this mysterious answer that the Lord gives. So this name, Yahweh, the great I am, this phrase, I am what I am, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting. I'm just giving you little bites that you can chew on. It's mysterious, yes, but it also means to convey something very um, significant about God's character. It, it's meaning to communicate his eternal nature, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, again, his covenant faithfulness, his compassion. Look at verse 16 and 17. Moses is, is meant, when he comes bearing this name, I am, he's meant to tell the people that Yahweh has seen their plight and is promising to do something about it. Well, that's the personnel for the mission. Two main players, one divine, one human. And we need to move on to see in the third place the purpose of the mission. And I think we can deal with this quickly but we certainly want to draw our attention to it so we don't miss it. I think it's such an important point that it's, it's actually a huge component to the title of this sermon series. We've, we've called this sermon series Freed to Worship. And it contains a purpose statement. We've already started to answer this question, believe it or not, uh, when we notice that this rescue mission has two steps. It's not just a rescue from, it's a rescue to. It's not just out of slavery in Egypt, but to the goodness of Canaan. But even that is not going to be ultimate. Even that place is not the, the ultimate purpose. The Lord is not going to be content to just bring the people to a good place. No, he intends to bring them to a good preoccupation if I could put it that way. And here's what I mean. We see purposes in verses 12 and 18. In verse 12, the Lord has just promised Moses his presence. And now he's going to offer him a sign. I skipped over this at the time, but I want to come back to it. The Lord, for the encouragement of Moses, offers him a sign. But notice that it's a future sign. We're not really used to to that kind of a thing. The Lord says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's, it's weird because usually when, usually a sign is something in the present or in the very near future, something that's going to be able to attest to the veracity of something else. But this particular sign is going to offer confirmation way down the road in the future. It's the kind of sign that requires first some steps of faith. And the Lord is essentially saying that the success of this mission 
is going to be the sign. And what will constitute the success of this mission, according to the Lord? It's when all of his people are gathered around this same mountain, freed from Egypt, worshiping and serving the Lord. This is, this is why we've called the sermon series Freed to Worship. That is the ultimate goal and purpose for their salvation and for ours. The purpose of our salvation is worship, it's service, it's sacrifice. And forgive me if you think that's too basic of a point for me to be making, but I fear that too many Christians spend a lot of their energy and their time and their heart focusing on the saved from part at the expense of the saved to part. So we're delighted that we've been saved from from sin and from ourselves and from Satan. That's all great. But if that's all that you were left with, what you'd have, my friends, is a purposeless salvation. We need to understand the the saved to part. And so we read, helpfully, this is all over the Bible, but here's a great place to start. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We, we've been freed for this particular purpose, to worship our merciful God, to serve him sacrificially with all that we are and with all that we have, our whole selves poured out in eternal thankfulness and service to such a great Savior. We see the same purpose in verse 18, where the Lord is giving Moses instructions concerning uh, what must be requested of Pharaoh. It's this. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that, and notice that that word that indicates purpose, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. There's your purpose, sacrifice, service, worship of the Lord our God. That's the purpose of our salvation. Now, let me just say a word about something that might sound weird to you. You're you're wondering, why is Moses just asking for three days off? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? And it sounds like that's what the Lord's instructing him to do. And even if it is three days trip one way, wouldn't it be more like, Okay, three days to get there, three days to be there, three days to come back. You know, a week and a half's worth of vacation, that's a far cry from deliverance from Egypt. What's going on here? This doesn't sound like the mission that we were expecting. And it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. One option is that three days journey is just kind of an Egyptian expression for describing a long journey of an undefined time. So they would have understood, we we think about it very precisely, they would have understood it just as like a bunch of, you know, a long time. I I think a better explanation is that this is, this is also cultural, but this is like an Egyptian, this is an, an Eastern way of beginning negotiations. In, in many parts of the world, and especially in the, in the Near East, if you ever traveled there, you understand that dickering is just expected. You know, it, it's a necessary part of the process. It's, it's social engagement. You don't just do the deal. You, you got you to gotta go back and forth a bunch of times. And as this plays out, Pharaoh is going to be offering concessions more and more with kind of increasing degrees of freedom until he finally agrees to let the people go. And the point seems to be that Pharaoh is going to understand exactly what Moses is asking for here. He's asking for complete freedom for the purpose of worshiping the one true and living God. Now we've been drawing some parallels to the Great Commission that the Lord has given to us. And 
So we might ask, well, what is the church's purpose? Is, is our purpose missions? It's hard to think of a higher purpose than that. I love the answer that John Piper gives in his excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And missions exists because worship doesn't. This is why this is why you're sent. This is why you need to go talk to your neighbor and your coworker. This is why you need to maybe travel to South America or Southeast Asia. Because there's people there that were created to worship the one true and living God. And they're worshiping everything else but false gods they're pursuing their own pleasure their own power and our commission first of all our heart needs to be a heart of compassion for just the extraordinarily lost lost nature of these people huge swaths of humanity but then to engage in this mission is to by the grace of god um help people understand that they are meant to worship the Lord himself and serve him. That's, that's the ultimate goal, worship, service, sacrifice. I'm going to pull on that thread in just a second, but I'm going to do so very quickly under our fourth and final point, which is a preview of the mission. And that's what we have in verses tw 16 to 22. They're in part, instructions about the, the mission. So the Lord here is going to tell Moses what he needs to do and what he needs to say to various audiences. But these verses also provide us with a preview of the mission. Now, when, when you're talking about just general rescue operations, when army generals or when guys like Ron Robber, when he was part of the mine rescue crew, when, when these guys are planning their missions, the best they can do is to make multiple plans for various scenarios. These guys always deal with contingencies, which is the language of, you know, if X happens, then we'll try to do Y. And then if that fails, we'll implement Z. Right? The, it's all based on what might happen or possibilities or unforeseen circumstances. But I want you to understand, don't miss this, that when a sovereign God is on mission, he's able to speak with great precision about what will definitely happen. And here's what will definitely happen. The elders of Israel will listen to Moses. Pharaoh will not listen to Moses. He'll refuse He's stubborn, he's hard-hearted, and the Lord knows that he's going to refuse unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. But guess what? God has a mighty hand, and he's going to stretch out his mighty hand and do all kinds of wonders. And then Pharaoh is going to let the people go. But before you go, the Lord says, I'm going to give you favor in the eyes of rank-and-file Egyptians. And they're going to give you all kinds of gold and silver and drip. And you're going to be able to leave their land with all of their wealth. All of that is going to happen. And it's guaranteed because you're dealing with a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning. More than that, it's not just mere knowledge. God knows all of this so intimately because he's the one who has written the script. I hope you can see just how incredibly comforting and motivating is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he sends us out on mission, he tells us exactly what we'll encounter. There's no surprises here. He says, on the one hand, we're going to face opposition. He says, they hated me. If they hate the master, they're going to hate the servants. Don't be, don't be under any kind of illusion 
He says, most definitely, here's the preview, in this world, you will have trouble. But you didn't let him finish. But be of good cheer, because he has overcome the world. And then how's this for a preview? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and following, we get a, we get a glimpse of the mission's purpose realized. We, see, we get to see worship. We, we hear the, the voice of myriads singing a, a brand new song, and they're singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the worship song. That's a preview of what definitely will happen. There'll be people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation joined together worshiping the Lamb for all of eternity. And the point, brothers and sisters, in case you're missing it, is the wild success of God's great rescue mission is guaranteed. So then let's just go out in his name and in his strength and for his eternal glory. Amen? Amen.